Hello and welcome back to Unknown History. I'm Giles Milton. Unknown History is taking a break while I work on my new book, which will be published next year. But while I'm busy writing, I have something special to share with you. This week, we're launching a four-episode guest series about American democracy. It'll be hosted by the hosts of New Hampshire Public Radio Civics 101 and the authors of an upcoming book, A User's Guide to Democracy, by Hannah McCarthy and Nick Capodice. Hannah and Nick will get you up to speed about how democracy works in the US so American voters can brush up on your civic knowledge in time for the November presidential election. But even if you're not from the US, like me, you can still learn a lot about things like what powers America's president actually has and how representatives are elected. Keep listening for new episodes each Monday over the next four weeks. You won't want to miss this. Hello, hello, everyone. I'm Nick Capodice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. And we are delighted to take over the next four weeks of the Unknown History podcast on Quick and Dirty Tips for a special four-week series about U.S. civics. We assure you this will be the quickest and dirtiest rundown on how our government works in the lead-up to what may be one of the most significant presidential elections in U.S. history. And a governmental 101 is right up our alley. We are the hosts of a podcast called Civics 101, a show where we call experts from around the world to break down topics like the difference between the House and the Senate, how bills really become laws, our founding documents, federalism, and the post office. You name it, we cover it. And we have done this in book form as well. This September, we are releasing A User's Guide to Democracy, How America Works. It's illustrated by New Yorker cartoonist Tom Toro, and it's a whimsical, breezy, but pretty darn thorough exploration of every facet of our government. Welcome to week one. We're talking elections and voting for this episode, what they are, how they work, and what you need to know before you pull a lever or punch a chad. And nobody actually pulls levers or punches chads anymore. First off, elections. Every even year in the U.S., we have a general election, and it takes place on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. I have always thought that was a very wordy and strange date. Is that in the Constitution? No, no, it's not. It was a day picked by Congress in 1845 for presidential elections, and then elections for reps in the House followed suit to make it the same day in 1872. Well, why a Tuesday? Well, some people had to travel quite a bit to cast their vote, so they didn't want it to be interfering with religious services on Sunday. And they didn't ever want it to fall on the first of the month because lots of merchants and landlords are tallying up their books on that day. But in the general election, every two years, we fill whatever seats are open in the federal government. Each member of the House, all 435 of them, are up for election every two years. And about a third of the Senate. Senators have six-year terms. They are staggered. Every senator, when they're elected, is assigned a class, class one, two, or three. Class two is up for election this November. And sometimes, every four years to be exact, the president is up for election as well. We call that a presidential election. And when they're not up, it's called a midterm election. We've got presidential election and midterm down. Any other elections that you might want to get into? 
I think it is worth mentioning primaries and caucuses. These are the elections before the elections, the elections where we choose who we're going to have on the ballot in November. The big thing to know is presidential primaries are run by the state, and caucuses, which are more and more rare these days, are run by the party. Lots of states have closed primaries where you can only vote in them if you're a registered member of the party, and some have open primaries where anyone can vote, but you can only vote in one party primary. Other states have what's called a nonpartisan blanket primary, sometimes called a qualifying primary, a jungle primary, or a top two primary, and this is already muddying the water, so I'm not going to get into those. All right, now that we've got elections under our belts, I think especially as we're heading toward a presidential election shortly, we should talk about the Electoral College. Okay. When you vote for a presidential candidate in November... I I hate this. I can never wrap my mind around it. When you vote for a presidential candidate in November, you are not voting for a candidate. You're voting for a group of electors who belong to that candidate's party, and they in December will cast their vote for the party. Why do we do it this way? This system was designed by none other than Alexander Hamilton. There were so many things he hadn't done, but he did create the Electoral College. He wrote about its benefits in Federalist 68, the essay which was part of the collection of pro-ratification of the Constitution op-eds we now refer to as the Federalist Papers. He wanted to create a bulwark of moral, manly men between the people and the presidential candidate. This was in response to the fear that the framers had for democracy or mobocracy, as they sometimes called it. Because what if, and I'm purely inhabiting the mindset of the framers here, what if the voters were uneducated? What if they voted for a candidate of no virtue who lied and cheated to win the hearts of the masses? The Electoral College is a barrier to that. Those people, the electors, they surely would see the faults in the candidate and cast their vote for someone else. Let's get into it. How does it work? Every state gets a certain number of electoral votes. And this is the number of representatives you have in Congress. So you add your House representatives to your two senators, and Bob's your uncle. And how do we decide how many reps a state gets? It is based on the state population and therefore based on the census. For example, Pennsylvania has 18 reps in the House, and with their two senators, that makes 20 electoral votes. And whichever candidate wins the plurality of votes in the state of Pennsylvania, that candidate's party casts all the electoral votes for that candidate. It is a winner-take-all system. Two states, Maine and Nebraska, they do it differently. Uh, Their votes can be split based on their congressional districts. But... The framers didn't let the people decide. They made this barrier. So technically, an elector in December could cast their vote for someone else. It has happened a couple hundred times in U.S. history, uh, and these are called faithless electors. Though I will add, in the last month, the Supreme Court has ruled that states can pass laws to force electors to vote for the candidate that won in the state. I have heard a good deal of talk about abolishing the Electoral College in favor of just going with the popular vote. Is that even possible? It it frankly seems unlikely because it's going to require a constitutional amendment, which would require two-thirds of both houses, which is doable, but also three-fourths of all the states. And I just doubt 
that some of those smaller states would relinquish their electoral power. Well, I've got a story of a slightly simpler change to voting in America, if you want to hear it. Still a pretty big deal. I mean, it kind of changed everything. Of course I want to hear about it. What are you waiting for? Okay. The history of voting in the U.S. is fraught. I feel like I can say that and most people would agree with me and probably know what I'm talking about, at least in a general sense. We wouldn't have had a woman's suffrage movement or the 15th Amendment or the Voting Rights Act of 1965 if voting were easily accessible. Yeah, I agree with you. We have to talk about this. Just the briefest glance at the headlines of voting in the U.S. and you see that it has been an uphill battle for many, many Americans. Voter disenfranchisement has a long legacy in the United States, and some would say it's still alive and well, especially for certain minority groups, even if it's not explicitly codified in our laws. But what I didn't know, Nick, until just a few years ago, is how much deeper that story goes. To get the whole picture and understand how voting became what it is today— you have to go back to a time when voting looked completely different. Like, has it ever crossed your mind that Election Day should be a holiday? Like a national holiday? Like a bank holiday? Most people get off work, school, that kind of thing? Yeah, but not just that. A day for revelry and parades and overindulgence and celebration. Not unlike the 4th of July. It is hard for me to picture Election Day being a party for anybody but the winning political candidate. Because Election Day these days involves waiting in a long line, solemnly picking up your ballot, stepping into a booth or behind a partition, and secretly making your selections, or doing that by mail. It's a stifled private act. I know people who wouldn't disclose their vote to their own spouse or child. They consider that privacy so sacrosanct. When I was a kid, I actually thought that it was illegal to tell anyone who you voted for. Yeah, but the secret ballot is essential to American democracy, right? For some reason. Yeah, but for what reason? All right, I'm listening. Because back when we were colonies, the most common form of voting was viva voce. Viva voce! Voting by voice. That's right. Although actually, in this case, it was probably more like show up to the town common uh, and people who are voting for Jebediah Jones stand to the right of the public well. And people who are voting for Elias Edwards stand to the left. And then someone in charge would count the polls, a.k.a. the tops of people's heads. Hold on. Poll count literally means head count? Yes. And ballot, another all-important tool of the secret American vote, that originally referred to a little token or kernel of corn that you would toss into a box representing your chosen candidate. So was this just a colonial thing? Did we start to get all hush-hush after the U.S. became the U.S.? We know that voting is barely in the Constitution. In fact, the framers explicitly left the, quote, times, places, and manner of holding congressional elections up to the states. I feel like manner is a pretty operative word here. And the only thing the states really agreed on was that Election Day be a holiday for partying in the streets. What actually happened here is we as a nation started to get bigger. Like immigration boom bigger? That had a lot to do with it, yeah. Because the U.S. in the 1790s, that's around 4 million souls large, jump ahead about a century around the time we really started to rethink voting. And what would the population have been? 
man, like closer to 40 million. Yeah, so a tenfold increase in 100 years. Paper ballots started to be introduced in part because tens of thousands of people throwing a little ball into a box could get messy. But elections in states were still, forgive the idiom, all over the map. Some state constitutions mention ballots, but not all. And in those that did have paper ballots, you had to bring your own paper and make sure you spelled your candidate and their hopeful job correctly. No paper, no problem. Certain helpful folks would pre-print ballots and hand them out. They'd even pay you to vote for their candidate. Of course, it is still corruption. It's undue influence on a democratic system. And as more and more states enter the nation with fewer and fewer voting restrictions, you've got way more poor and illiterate people voting, which opens the door for intimidation and bribery. Newspapers start printing ballots for one party or candidate or another. These ballots are big and brightly colored and tell you what the party bosses were going to notice if you tried voting for somebody other than the person that they'd paid you to vote for. Debates started swirling around about what the meaning of suffrage even was, if it were something that could be bought. Well, it isn't, right? It's a machine of power and corruption. Power and corruption that was really hitting a fever pitch around the time that a journalist and political economist named Henry George published a couple of articles about money and bribery in elections. In them, he argued for something called the Australian Ballot also known as the secret ballot. And political reformers liked what they were reading. Now, all you need to know is that Australia had some corruption of their own until they started issuing government-printed ballots that weren't dead giveaways as to who you were voting for. So is that it, then? Is this the death knell for the circus that was once Election Day? It did happen pretty fast. The Australian ballot called for an official ballot being printed at public expense, on which the names of the nominated candidates of all parties and all proposals appear, being distributed only at the polling place, and being marked, very importantly, in secret. There was some predictable pushback from politicians in power who were not super keen on the idea of elections that could not be bought. But Massachusetts caved first, and other states followed suit. Gone were the days of reveling in the streets, of strong-arming voters. Yeah, but something else was gone, too. By, quote-unquote, cleaning up Election Day, states made it so that you had to know how to read what was printed on the ballot in order to vote. Which, I would imagine, eliminated a large swath of the eligible voting public. So we're talking late 19th century here, right? Around the 1890s? So that's when you would have first started to see things like selective literacy tests, which were also designed to turn voters away from the polls, specifically Black voters. Right. The Reconstruction Amendments had outlawed slavery, gutted the Three-Fifths Compromise, which, by the way, had allowed slave states to count enslaved people as three-fifths of a person when determining proportional representation, so that was gone, and prohibited disenfranchisement based on race or, quote, previous condition of servitude. These amendments should have, and initially did, make it possible for Black men to vote in the United States. But Black voter turnout plummeted after the Reconstruction era in the South, as states began to implement things like, you said, Nick, literacy tests and uh, poll taxes. And the secret ballot didn't help things. Voter turnout generally in the U.S. 
in the very earliest days of the secret ballot was around 80% and has been declining since. We have not seen numbers like that since. It's ironic that a secret, private, protected vote came at the expense of widespread suffrage. I'd also imagine that if voting still looked the way it did before the secret ballot, with the 11th hour campaigning and the throng surging the ballot box and the thrill of getting slipped a fiver for a vote, corrupt though it was, more people were lured to the polls. Speaking of being lured to the polls, that's something that's going to be especially fraught in the 2020 election. So before we bounce, a few words to the wise. Many states are allowing mail-in voting for all voters due to the COVID-19 pandemic. You can check your Secretary of State's website for the details. Now, your state may send you a ballot in the mail, or you may have to apply for one. Still, many millions of voters will need an excuse beyond their coronavirus fears to receive a mail-in ballot. So if you are hitting the polls, know this. If you're of age and meet your state's residency requirements, then register. Now, some states allow you to do this online, but for many, it's by mail or in person. And bring an ID. And even if you think you're registered, check your status, also at your Secretary of State's website. Now, doggedly lock down those dates. Know when your mail-in ballot needs to be postmarked. Know where your polling place is. Know the date of the election, which for the presidential election is what, Nick? The first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, a.k.a. 2020, November 3rd. And one last thing, there is a chance that someone will try to turn you away at the polls even if you are registered. Even if you've got your ID, which, by the way, please bring with you no matter what. So my last gift to you are these magic words. I request a provisional ballot and receipt as is required by law. The provisional ballot is one that has to be verified after you actually vote. But except in states where you can register day of, or in North Dakota where you don't have to register, you just need to have proof of birth and residency, the poll worker has got to provide you with one. Period. Good luck out there, fellow voters. Thanks for listening to Unknown History on Quick and Dirty Tips. We'll be back next week with part two of our four-part series based on our new book, A User's Guide to Democracy, with a how-to on civic participation from petition to protest. You can follow Quick and Dirty Tips on Twitter at Quick and Dirty Tips or search for Quick and Dirty Tips on Facebook for more practical advice to help you do things better. Catch you next week. 